So the monks populated the Skelligs from the 6th to the 12th century and their diet would have been really poor out there. But every day they harvested this particular seaweed dillisk. This one is looking a mixture of deep brown and a little bit of green. And on the sides of the plant where it ruffles, it looks like a ruffle. We call that the wings. This is The Food Podcast, a Village Soundcast network production where personal stories are shared through the lens of food. In northern Japan, they have the oldest healthy population on earth. They attribute that to fish, shellfish, and seaweeds. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. What do you keep in your glove compartment? Maps? Car insurance? Wine gums? How about a bag of dulse and a small metal cup? My dad says that's what his father always had in the glove compartment of the family Chevrolet. I never met my grandfather, Cameron. My dad shared this little detail the other day when we were talking about dulse. He spoke about that glove compartment like it was yesterday. His father died young over 50 years ago, but the mention of dulse, it brought it all back. Dulse grows from a steadfast on rocks in the cold North Atlantic waters. Its reddish-brown, fat fronds can grow as long as my legs. You can eat it fresh from the water, but here in Nova Scotia, it's usually dried first in the sun, traditionally right there on the dock, or spread over rocks, then it's packaged and sold. Dried dulse is crackly and chewy, almost elastic. It's a satisfying chew. My grandfather first got a taste for dulse back in the late 1930s when he was working as a chemist with the Canadian Geological Society. The job took him down Nova Scotia's Highway 2, along the north side of the Minas Basin, past the red cliffs of economy in Five Islands to Parsbro, where he and my grandmother would stay the night at Ottawa House, once a grand hotel overlooking the tidal islands in the Minas Basin. Then they'd follow the 209 past Blue Sack, Port Creville, Spencer's Island to Advocate Harbour, where the basin opens up to the mighty Bay of Fundy, the body of water that stretches between Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, famous for the highest tides in the world. The rocks along this coast were laid down during the Jurassic period. There's evidence of dinosaurs there and fossils, and there's amethyst, fluorite, iron, and manganese. It's the perfect place to survey the mineral resources of the area and to buy dulse, something the Bay of Fundy is also famous for. My grandparents would buy bags of dried dulse at gas stations or little grocery stores along the way. And when they were thirsty from all that salty dulse, my grandfather would pull the car over at secret spots where he knew fresh spring water was running, and he'd catch the water in his little metal cup. These three things went together. Dulse, fresh water, and long drives. My dad loves dulse. I wonder if the love is tied to the memory of his father. I've grown to like it in soups or chopped up and sprinkled over food instead of salt. I've yet to eat it like chips from a bag, piece after piece as I cruise along the coast. But I know it's good for me and it's local and sustainable. Perhaps I just need to take a long car ride in a bumpy 1938 Chevy sedan, hungry to really understand its value. No wine gums in sight, just a bag of dulse and a little metal cup. (laughs) 
Today on the Food Podcast, we chat with John Fitzgerald of Atlantic Irish Seaweed, a longtime seaweed grazer who operates discovery walks and workshops on the southwest coast of Ireland. We'll dive deep into seaweed from its history, health benefits, why and how he's made a life around it, and the future he sees for seaweed. I'll also talk with Taylor Widrig of Mermaid Fair here in Nova Scotia. Taylor has built a business around wild and cultivated seaweeds from this side of the Atlantic. It's everything seaweed, or sea vegetables, shall I say, today on The Food Podcast. Once upon a time, there was a man who spent his summers fishing and foraging seaweed along the wild Atlantic Way on the southwest tip of Ireland. One day, he met a woman who also spent her summers there. Together, they'd fish out on a boat and snack on fresh Atlantic dulse and other seaweed delights the ocean offered up. At the end of the day, they'd share their catch to anyone and everyone they met off the pier. Sometimes they gave away so much, they ended up eating sausages for dinner. No one would ever go hungry living where they did. Sometimes those who had been gifted fish would try to repay these two in pints at the local pub. It was a circle of giving out there on the Ring of Kerry. One day the woman proposed to the man, and he said yes. You can find them there today with little girls in tow, fishing and foraging seaweed and sharing their bounty and knowledge with the locals and visitors alike. You might hear the tiny voices of their little girls shouting their battle cry. Seaweed for the people! Seaweed for the people! Seaweed for the people! I heard this story from the woman herself, Carrie Ann Fitzgerald, while drinking Guinness with her friends in a barn at Litfest, the Irish food and literary festival that I've gone on about before. Carrie Ann had traveled from the Ring of Kerry for the festival, leaving husband John and two little girls behind. Carrie Ann and her friends took me in, the Canadian who knew no one but had a face so eager, how could they refuse? Our conversation turned to seaweeds. She told me about the business they had built. John leading discovery walks and workshops for students and scientists and culinary enthusiasts or tourists. Carrie Ann serving up eight course lunches at the end of the workshops, each course featuring sustainably harvested local seaweeds. She even serves an elderflower and sugar kelp champagne. I wanted to go there to take a workshop and to learn more, but alas, I had to go home. So instead, I patched on in from their Irish home on the wild Atlantic Way. I asked him about the first time he ate seaweed way back when on those family holidays on the southwest coast. Perhaps it was dulse or dillisk, as it's called in Irish. Well, I would have been grazing as a kid. When we went fishing, we would have eaten dillisk, one of our most famous ones, which is the one the monks on Skelligs ate. The Vikings carried on their open boats. We would have eaten that as a salty snack, if you like. In fact, immigrants from Ireland brought their love of dillisk across the Atlantic and then they found it over there. There's plenty of places over there that they relish it. Like the Bay of Fundy. But it comes from two Irish words, dulishka, which means the leaf of the water. 
I don't remember the first time, but I guess I can tell you that our kids eat it, and one is two and one is three, so it goes way back. But they eat it fresh, not dried as we do. Raw off the rocks, if you like. Okay, wait a second. Let's get our bearings. From where John was sitting, he says he can look out onto Kenmare Bay and see the Skellig Islands, where the monks he mentioned lived. A quick Google reveals two remote, craggy islands seemingly inaccessible to humans off the tip of his part of the world. The monastery on the bigger island dates back to the 6th century, when monks sought extreme isolation to get a little closer to God. It's also where Luke Skywalker took up residency, as seen in The Force Awakens. There are 600 old stone steps from the ocean to the monastery. 600 steps to a dulce or dillisk supply. The monks populated the Skelligs from the 6th to the 12th century, and their diet would have been really poor out there. The Skellig translates as jagged rock. So there's very little grew there. They basically ate seabird eggs and seabirds and fish when they could get them. But every day they harvested this particular seaweed, dillisk, and it's packed with vitamins, minerals, trace elements. A great source of vitamin C, which is very, very important. Because like I said, if your diet's poor and you can have a multivitamin and mineral supplement, you have a good chance of surviving. And so that's from the 6th to the 12th century. And then it's ironic that there are only international visitors out there in the Skellig Islands, which was at the time the end of the known world. After the Skellig Rocks, which are 14 miles offshore, it was considered the earth was flat. So after that, you just fell off the edge of the earth and that was it. But there are only international visitors during that time were the Vikings. The Vikings also carried Dillisk on their boats. Their boats were open to the weather. They didn't have cabins or down below. The fact that Dillisk is a seaweed, remember now it's packed with vitamins, minerals, trace elements, but particularly vitamin C. It's got lots of protein, lots of iron. If it gets wet by the splash of a wave or by the rain, it's no big deal because that's the way it lives anyway. When the tide goes out, it dries off, and it might get a bit of rain, then the tide comes in, it gets covered in salt water again. That's its normal cycles. Basically, it's very easy to store. If you get the moisture level down to about 10%, it'll store perfectly. So if it were to get wet on its five-week voyage down from Norway, you just need to dry it off when you get a chance. Whereas other fruit and vegetables, they'll start to rot straight away once they get wet. All that dulse, the seabirds, the eggs, maybe Skellig has a better diet than you get on Tatooine. My family isn't the only family eating dulse in Nova Scotia, but it certainly isn't mainstream. It's still a nostalgic food or an export sent off to those who know better. It reminds me a bit of old Nova Scotian schoolyard stories, where the child of the fisherman brought lobster sandwiches for lunch and tried to swap them with the townie kid's peanut butter sandwich. Our treasures weren't always seen as treasures. Was seaweed always accepted as a foodstuff in Ireland? Were there class issues woven into its history? If we go back five and 6,000 years ago when Ireland was inhabited first after the last ice age, the early settlers would have lived around the coast as opposed to inland, which was all forested. So they would have lived around the coast. And the reason they lived around the coast was for access to foodstuffs. Fish, shellfish, and seaweeds. Seaweeds, remember, they grow year-round. Different ones will grow year-round, but they'll always be stuff at the shore. So traditionally, you would have been eaten by everybody. What happened after colonization in Ireland, we became monocrop dependent, pretty much on the potato. And at that stage, a lot of the knowledge would have been lost or ignored, if you like. 
your food stuff was there outside your door in the muddy field and that's what you ate. It's only when that failed, people tried to rush back to the shore. We compared them to land plants. Each one has a different season, even though there'll be certain seaweeds there all year round. Other ones come and go. They'll all be triggered at different times of the year by light and temperature, which is what starts their growth and dormancy cycles. So it's all very well to say um, the potatoes failed, so you can rush to the shore and gather everything that's there and store it. But of course, to stores today we're spoiled because we've got freezers and we've got drying facilities and dehydrators and sheds. Whereas back then they wouldn't have had access to any of this. So you can't just go down the shore the day you realise you're starving and your family's starving. You need to plan into it. The knowledge was there. It was weaned off as we became monocrop dependent, which is what the colonisers wanted. When the emergency came, it was too late, if you like. Because when you found out your crop was rotten in the ground, you were actually weak from that moment on. But there were attempts all along the shoreline. There's records of people going towards seaweeds. Looking back now, it would be associated with hard times or famine times. But John says that chefs and scientists praising the health benefits of seaweeds have done the most to change their perception in recent years. Chef René Redzepi of the Michelin-starred restaurant Noma in Copenhagen, he's been putting seaweed on his menu for years, which has inspired other chefs. A few years ago, I was dining at the Ledbury in London, and lo and behold, my Scottish salmon was crowned with a twist of dark purple dried dulse. It was delicious, from the crackle to the fresh ocean kick. Isn't it great when health benefits and taste collide? I call this healthy by accident. It's my favorite way to live. But of course, the Japanese have been eating this way for centuries. In northern Japan, they have the oldest healthy population on Earth. Even though they smoke more than the French, they have less lung cancers. They attribute that to fish, shellfish, and seaweeds. The Japanese eat more seaweed than anybody else. They eat seaweed with each meal. Three times a day, they'd have seaweed. So why has it taken the rest of us over here on the northeastern side of the Atlantic so long to catch on? Seaweed, aside from the snack and car rides, was something I'd slip on when walking on the beach at low tide. Or I'd pick up rockweed with its long tendrils and built-in air pockets that I'd burst between my fingers. Nature's bubble wrap. I asked John how I could eat rockweed. I imagine there were similar thoughts the first time humans came across lobster or a cactus or sea urchin, but someone was brave enough to wonder. John says, when it comes to rockweed... That one, I dry it as much as you can outside and then maybe finish it off at a very low heat in the oven. And then I'd um, mill it using, say, a Nutribullet or a coffee grinder, mill it into flakes or powder, and then just put it in a tub or a jar and start to include it in your diet. Whether you have it in a tea or you have it in a stew or you're making bread or you're making pizza base or making spaghetti bolognese, whatever you're making, put a teaspoon of that in. There's no wrong answers. And every so often when I was young, we'd spot a forager on our beach looking for Irish moss, or carrageen as the Irish call it. The rumor on the beach was that Irish moss was worth a lot of money and it could thicken stuff like ice cream and toothpaste. Seaweed and toothpaste? Such a crazy thought for a kid. But as a matter of fact, just that morning, John's kids enjoyed a little carrageen for breakfast. Carrie-Anne has a spice rack in her kitchen full of little jars of dried and ground seaweeds that she uses for cooking. 
I imagine an apothecary next to curry powders, soy sauce, sesame oil, and all the other international flavors in their kitchen. A place where taste and health collide. This morning she made um, fruit ice pops with carrageen, which is another one of our red seaweeds that's used in toothpastes. And it's a natural thickener that's widely used in the food industry. It's antiviral and antibacterial, so we make ice pops for the kids with them. It's a brilliant cold and flu buster. So if you give the kids a fruit ice pop made with carrageen, then you're giving them a real um, shot in the arm, if you like, to fight off the winter bugs. If I speak to the old people around here, they would have had carrageen as kids. And if they were lucky, they would have had it boiled in milk with maybe a tiny bit of honey added. But they would have been very, very limited, the flavourings they had back then. So they all would have had, like you on the car journeys with the Dillisk, they would have had sort of take-your-medicine reactions to it. Whereas now you can disguise it with all the flavourings we have. So it's win-win. That covers their dried seaweed. But I ask him what's in season right now, out there on the wild Atlantic Way. Because like plants, seaweeds, or sea vegetables, as they ought to be called, have their own unique seasons, their own flavors, shapes, textures. What's growing now? You'd have slow corn, which is nari, the sushi wrap one. We've got seven species of that growing one after the other here on the coast. It grows nearby sea grass, which is the green grass-like one that covers the boulders. Those two guys live in the same place. And the remarkable thing about nari is it can be up to 37% protein, which is a huge amount of protein when you think that um, chickpeas would be 28%. Some of these seaweeds would have remarkable things to bring to the table, if you like. If you think 37% protein is an enormous amount of protein. In Ireland, nori doesn't get processed and wrapped around rice. John says China, Japan, Korea, they have the market on that. Traditionally, it was just eaten for its protein content, especially during famines. And there's record of Daniel O'Connell surviving on the stuff. He's Ireland's 19th century Gandhi. Well, he would have been a very important political figure here. There was a time for hundreds of years where Catholics couldn't vote, they couldn't own land, they couldn't get educated. And he went on to change all that. He was also a, a pacifist like Gandhi, so he brought the British Empire to its knees just using his wits. For 40 days and 40 nights coming up to Easter Sunday, which would have been the period known as Lent, which is early April, you weren't allowed to eat meat. The sea is too rough to fish. So right on the shore, this seaweed slow corn or nari was growing. So it's up to 37% protein. So this would have been a very important factor in the diet then when they needed protein, they weren't allowed to eat meat and they couldn't walk to the corner store and buy a tin of chickpeas. Who wouldn't want to pop something in their mouths, something salty and fresh, and know they're getting their protein fill for the whole day? It seems perfectly obvious, but anything new is a little intimidating. How much to eat? What is too much? What seaweed is most palatable for the whole family? If bacon is the gateway meat for vegetarians, what is the gateway seaweed? So today, um, maybe we'll use the sea lettuce. Okay. That's Taylor Widrig, owner of Mermaid Fair, a Nova Scotian company distributing dried, wild, and cultivated seaweeds. All species in the smoothie are equally as great. Uh, It's just whatever, which one you want to... Taylor has traveled the world, living in Hawaii, teaching yoga in Mexico, working as a chef on yachts, studying culinary arts in New York and California. But now she's back in Nova Scotia, spreading the word about the benefits of our natural resource, seaweed. 
I invited her over to make a smoothie with me to show me her gateway seaweed, which is sugar kelp flakes. That was about a tablespoon for the both of us. Okay. Yeah. For the the kelp powder, for example, you're going to want to use less, like a teaspoon, um, because it has more volume. You can use more. Now, tell me, if I did this on a daily basis, what would happen to me? Well, you're, a lot of people report a boost in energy. So if you're thinking of it as a supplement, um, there's lots of iodine, protein, um, iron, and from a plant-based source. So you're, it's easy for your body to assimilate it and to absorb those nutrients. Um, so I just recommend it for overall well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, some naturopaths will recommend including more seaweeds, the brown seaweeds especially, for thyroid support but it's important if you are taking thyroid medication to speak with your naturopath or doctor first because of the fact that there is iodine already in the seaweed you're going to want to see if you're balancing it out you don't want to overdo it overdo it right if if you're taking thyroid medication I told Taylor I had harvested some sea lettuce earlier this summer from the beach at my cottage The leaves are smaller than kelp, and it's a green seaweed rather than brown. She looked concerned. Sea lettuce will appear when there's organic matter that it can feed off of. So any sewage, any um, harmful toxins that are in the water. If you see an overgrowth of sea lettuce, um, usually it's there because nature is trying to clean up something in the water. Well, nothing happened to me. I rinsed it well and tossed it with sesame oil, soy, chopped cucumbers, and a little chili. It was delicious. I'm living on the edge. Anyway, we made the King Triton smoothie from her new book, Mermaid Fair Coloring and Seaweed Recipe Book. This is green, frothy, kind of mint colored. Inspired by the shores of Nova Scotia and the merfolk who live there. Tastes like... A delicious kale smoothie. Mm-hmm. Doesn't taste sea-ish at all. We put pineapple in my blender, torn kale, juice of a lime, some coconut water, and a teaspoon of sugar kelp flakes. So what would happen? Would it be okay if we upped the sea vegetable? I think that if you start off, like if you make one and just have the the amount listed on the recipe or, or in a recipe, any recipe or you know, a teaspoon is a good gauge. And then go from there, like kind of yeah. Because everybody knows they're, you know, yourself. The smoothie is green and frothy with a hint of tang from the lime and sweetness from the pineapple, but not a hint of seaweed. The sugar kelp flakes have an incredible smell, like parsley or summer savory. But you can't taste them in a smoothie. It's healthy by accident. Sugar kelp flakes, the silent fortifier. We sit and sip and talk more about why seaweed is so good for you. So when you're eating a safe sea lettuce or a dulse or a Atlantic kombu or Atlantic wakame, um, well, we'll use the Atlantic kombu, for example, um, or some people call it sugar kelp. So lasagna noodle-like on the edges and then more flat on the centerpiece. So when that piece of seaweed is disturbed and roughed up by the ocean swell and it's challenged to the waves, the plant 
in its effort to be more resilient, creates different compounds within the plant. So you find different proteins and different nutrients or higher levels or different levels, I should say, than one batch of sugar kelp grown in a, in a different area that might have more or less disturbances in the, in the water, rougher waters. So it's really interesting that as the, the plants are, are challenged, they become stronger. And slowly but surely, we Atlantic Canadians are starting to pay attention. I did a presentation for the Aquaculture Association of Nova Scotia on the topic of sea vegetables. And I put in the presentation just to help everybody grasp if we do have a negative perception in Atlantic Canada for seaweed being um, a weed or undesirable or as something that's not valuable. If it used to be thought of like that, a good comparison is that lobster used to be seen as undesirable. Rosé in France was socially not unacceptable, but it was bad to be seen in public drinking rosé, and it was considered a lower standard product than the red or the white. And caviar in Russia also used to be considered a low socioeconomic food choice. So if anybody thinks that seaweed is not valuable, we can think of those three products that are now one of the fanciest food items on the menu and extremely valuable across the globe. It's time for us to celebrate the dolls. It is time to celebrate dolls. Taylor tells me that dulse is the only seaweed she sells that is harvested in the wild, sustainably in New Brunswick, on the northern side of the Bay of Fundy, where my grandfather's dulse came from. Taylor says she always thinks of the Bay of Fundy as a big salad spinner, with the tides coming in and out, back and forth, flushing sea vegetables with nutrients. It's hard to imagine a vibrant garden of mixed lettuces down below. But it's there, holding fast to rocks, strength and flavor swirling with the tides. I asked John about the future of seaweed. Well, I imagine there's going to be a huge amount of seaweed farms. They're going to be growing them out on ropes in the Atlantic here. That's going to fix carbon, and so it's going to solve a lot of problems on shore with not just proteins and carbohydrate source for humankind and for animals also, but uh, there's going to be a huge amount of seaweed farms coming up, which is going to take pressure off the wild stocks also. So very exciting times. It's going to grow and grow and grow. In the meantime, John said that Carrie-Anne had made shepherd's pie for dinner, made with local lamb, garden vegetables, simmered in kelp for flavor and nutrients. Perhaps even a little elderflower champagne with sugar kelp to wash it all down. Outside, down by the shore, he says the air is full of fresh, salty sea. And sometimes, when in season, you'll smell a touch of pepper dulse. That's the most expensive seaweed in the Atlantic. It's a tiny little fern-like plant can sell for 2,000 a kilo when it's dried properly. It has a peppery, garlicky kick, and it's known as the truffle of the ocean. You can actually smell that when it's in season. You can pick up the scent. When I was in Ireland, Carrie-Anne gave me a little glass jar of pepper dolls. I had no idea of its value, but now I do. I'm going to sprinkle it this weekend over poached eggs, the black dried fern against white and yellow. I'll savor those peppery and garlicky notes, natural umami flavors, all the way from Ireland. Then I'll have a smoothie. 
Because as John and Taylor would say, it's time to celebrate seaweeds. We just have to spread the word. Seaweed for the people. Thanks to John Fitzgerald for opening up the world of sea vegetables for us. You can find out more about John and Carrie Ann's discovery walks, workshops, tours, and tastings at AtlanticIrishSeaweed.com. And thanks to Taylor Widrig of Mermaid Fair. I've been making your smoothie every morning since you drop by. I can report higher energy levels. Seriously, it's magical stuff. Mermaidfair.com is where you can find her and all of her products. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at The Food Podcast or at Lindsay Cameron Wilson. And please sign up for my newsletter where I'll keep you up to date on podcast news, share backstories from the episodes, and sometimes there's a recipe in there as well. You can sign up at lindsaycameronwilson.ca. And Jen Grant, thanks for our theme song. Thanks for listening. I'm Lindsay Cameron Wilson. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 